working our way in our morning services through uh, some of the minor prophets. I had a confession to make at the start of the series. I don't think I have preached my way through any of the minor prophets in the 10 years nearly since uh, I started here all the way back in 2008. I felt a little bit bad about that. Uh, All of Scripture is God-breathed and uh, there is much to learn from these letters. So we find ourselves having completed our two-week journey through the book of Jonah and the book of Obadiah, which is actually just before Jonah. The smallest letter in the New Testament, smallest book in the New Testament. I said something very important last week. When we're looking at the minor prophets, you must know There is never any shame in turning to the contents page at the front of your Bible. In fact, that goes for any book in the Bible. I don't know what page it is in your pure Bibles. It'll be 900 and something. Thank you. I think it's 925. Thereabouts. It would be helpful if you had the passage uh, to hand as... uh, as I preach. So we're going to read the whole book of Obadiah together. Obadiah verse 1. The vision of Obadiah. This is what the Sovereign Lord says about Edom. We have heard a message from the Lord. An envoy was sent to the nations to say, Rise and let us go against her for battle. See, I will make you small among the nations. You will be utterly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you. You who live in the clefts of the rocks and make your home on the heights. You who say to yourself, who can bring me down to the ground? Though you soar like the eagle and make your nest among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. If thieves came to you, if robbers in the night, Oh, what a disaster awaits you. Would they not steal only as much as they wanted? If grape pickers came to you, would they not leave a few grapes? But how Esau will be ransacked, his hidden treasures pillaged. All your allies will force you to the border. Your friends will deceive and overpower you. Those who eat your bread will set a trap for you, but you will not detect it. In that day, declares the Lord, will I not destroy the wise men of Edom, men of understanding in the mountains of Esau? Your warriors, O Teman, will be terrified, and everyone in Esau's mountains will be cut down in the slaughter because of the violence against your brother Jacob. You will be covered with shame. You will be destroyed forever. 
On the day you stood aloof while strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. You should not look down on your brother in the day of his misfortune, nor rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their destruction, nor boast so much in the day of their trouble. You should not march through the gates of my people in the day of their disaster, nor look down on them in their calamity in the day of their disaster, nor seize their wealth in the day of their disaster. You should not wait at the crossroads to cut down their fugitives, nor hand over their survivors in the day of their trouble. Verse 15, the day of the Lord is near for all nations. As you have done, it will be done to you. Your deeds will return upon your own head. Just as you drank on my holy hill, so all the nations will drink continually. They will drink and drink and be as if they had never been. But on Mount Zion, will be deliverance. It will be holy, and the house of Jacob will possess its inheritance. The house of Jacob will be a fire, and the house of Joseph a flame. The house of Esau will be stubble, and they will set it on fire and consume it. There will be no survivors from the house of Esau. The Lord has spoken. People from the Negev will occupy the mountains of Esau, and people from the foothills will possess the land of the Philistines. They will occupy the fields of Ephraim and Samaria, and Benjamin will possess Gilead. This company of Israelite exiles who are in Canaan will possess the land as far as Zarephath. The exiles from Jerusalem who are in Sepharad will possess the towns of Negev. Deliverers will go up on Mount Zion to govern the mountains of Esau, and the kingdom will be the Lord's. Amen. Well, we had a wee look or worked our way through, I should really say, the book of Jonah, which is probably the one minor prophet that we have a kind of working knowledge of. We spent two weeks looking at the book of Jonah. I want us now to turn our attention to some of the minor prophets that we will be less familiar with and perhaps less comfortable with as we read these books we come firstly to the most minor of all of the minor prophets. The name minor prophets is just a title given to the prophets that are shorter in length. It's not about how important they are, it's just about the shortness of these books. And this is the most minor of the minor prophets, the shortest of the prophets, the shortest of the Old Testament books, small in size but big in stature, very foreign to us as we read of these places and these people that we don't know much about, very foreign to us, written a long time ago to a people far away 
and yet this letter has so much to say to us on this day in this place. If only we would be humble enough to hear. So may the Lord give us ears to hear all that He would say to us through His Word this morning. Small in size, big in stature, that could be said of the book of Obadiah. I want to think about a couple of other people who are small in size, but big in stature as well. Here is a quote. His little legs, his little car, his little head. I'm going to knock him out inside four rounds. Mark my words. And that's it. As far as the fight, he will be unconscious inside four rounds. The movement, the power, the ferociousness, he's never experienced this. Any guesses as to who that was? That was Conor McGregor. For what seems like forever, Conor McGregor, who's an Irish mixed martial arts fighter, and Floyd Mayweather, who is a retired uh, boxer, uh, 40 years old, which is, I'm sure you'll agree, absolutely ancient. He, is, he agreed to come out of retirement, and Conor McGregor agreed to move from mixed martial arts into the boxing ring so that they could have a fight. And for this, a long, long time, these two have been engaging in what I think is called trash talk. And that was Conor McGregor. I'm going to issue a spoiler if you've got the highlights recorded or something. That was Conor McGregor who said, you know, mark my words, I'm going to knock him out inside four rounds. He'll be unconscious. He's never encountered the movement, the power, the ferociousness. He's not experienced this. Well, that guy lost the fight last night. Uh, I don't know what would cause Conor McGregor to come out of mixed martial arts and into the boxing ring when he's never had a professional fight before. I don't know what would cause Floyd Mayweather, 40 years old, to come out of retirement to fight. But I think they each got well over $100 million. So maybe that, that is part of the, the reason. I'm going to knock him out inside four rounds. Mark my words. I quote him simply because some of that kind of talk sounds a wee bit like what we read in the book of Obadiah. And that's one of the reasons that we can be somewhat uncomfortable with the minor prophets. Would God really speak like that? Like this, verse 4. Though you soar like the eagle and make your nest among the stars, from there I will bring you down. Verse 6. How Esau will be ransacked, his hidden treasures pillaged. In that day, verse 8 declares the Lord, Will I not destroy the wise men of Edom, men of understanding in the mountains of Esau? Your warriors, O Teman, will be terrified, and everyone in Esau's mountains will be cut down in the slaughter. What would cause God to speak like that? God is love. Does the Bible not say that? Surely that must mean that he is 
all-embracing, all-affirming, a grandfatherly figure in the sky. Is that the picture that you have of God in your, in your mind? Is that who you come to worship on a Sunday morning? An all-embracing, all-affirming, grandfatherly figure in the sky. That is a picture of God that the world in which we live would be happy for us to hold to. But it's a picture of God that falls far short of the God of Scripture, the true and living God. We can make up a God with a small g in our minds and worship that God. But the true and living God of Scripture is a powerful God worthy of the respect and the reverence of all people. What is it that C.S. Lewis said of Aslan? He is no tame lion. Christ is no tame Lord, and God is no tame God. And that is one thing that we will see with absolute clarity as we turn our attention to the minor prophets. God is no tame God, and we ought to be very thankful for that. What would cause God to speak in the way that he speaks in the book of Obadiah? Well, firstly, we need a quick history lesson. And that's another reason that sometimes we are reluctant to turn to the minor prophets, because we are unfamiliar with the people groups and the the kind of politics of the situation that these prophets spoke into originally. So a quick history lesson. Esau and Jacob were twin brothers, the sons of Isaac and Rebekah. And the defining moment in their relationship together was when Esau, the eldest of the twins, sold his birthright to Jacob for a bowl of stew. He allowed his temporal physical satisfaction to take priority over lasting spiritual blessing from God. And from Esau came the people called the Edomites. These are people who intermarried with uh, people who worshipped strange and and foreign gods. And uh, as usually happens when people marry people who worship false gods. They began to worship false gods as well. So you have the Edomites who came from Esau over here. Over here from Jacob who became known as Israel. You have the 12 tribes of Israel and the people of God. So these two people groups, the the Israelites, the people of God, and the Edomites uh, who worshipped false gods, and yet who are still spoken of in Scripture as uh, the the brother of of Jacob. So much like the original brothers themselves, these two people groups had a a strange and a strained relationship all the way through their history. God's people were commanded not to despise the Edomites, for they are your brothers, the Lord says in Deuteronomy. Uh, I think it's chapter 23 or chapter 25. But the reality is the relationship between these two people groups is never good. And then when Babylon comes and attacks Judah and uh, Jerusalem, 
and they break through the defences, and Jerusalem is laid bare before them, and they um, pillage the city and, and conquer the people. The Edomites, who are up in the hills, quite close by, they don't support their brothers, the people of God. They support the Babylonians. They rejoice that Jerusalem has fallen. The bitterness that they have allowed to take hold of their hearts is happy to see the people of God destroyed uh, or defeated and the city of God destroyed. That's what Obadiah is written into. So if you look at verse 2, because, uh, verse 10 rather, sorry, because of the violence against your brother Jacob, you will be covered with shame. You will be destroyed forever. On the day you stood aloof while strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. So the Lord says you were like one of the Babylonians. You should not look down, verse 12, on your brother in the day of his misfortune, nor rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their destruction, nor boast so much in the day of their trouble. You should not march through the gates of my people in the day of their disaster, nor look down on them in their calamity in the day of their disaster, nor seize their wealth in the day of their disaster. You should not wait at the crossroads to cut down their fugitives, nor hand over their survivors in the day of their trouble. That is why God responds with such anger. The Edomites had plotted with the enemies of God. They had plotted with the Babylonians. They had supported the Babylonians, and they had rejoiced in the fall of Jerusalem. They stood back with pleasure as the people of God and as the city of God fell. They cut down some who fled. So they watched the Babylonians go in and do the dirty work with pleasure. And then as some of the Israelites ran out of the city looking for refuge, maybe they could find refuge with the Edomites. They're still brothers in some sense, aren't they? but they are either cut down with the sword or captured and handed back to the Babylonians. Clearly, the Edomites benefit financially from the fall of Jerusalem. Maybe they go in to loot with the Babylonians. Maybe they just benefit from the trade, but clearly they are quite happy with this new arrangement. That is why God responds with such anger, because He loves His children. He loves His people. If you are incapable of anger in a world in which injustice and evil exist, if you are incapable of anger, then you are incapable of love. If I went and uh, punched I'll pick, pick someone carefully. If I went and punched Don in the face, then Jane would feel a number of emotions. I'm sure one of them would be anger. 
she would be angry if I went and uh, spat in Claire's face, then I'm sure James, oh, James, where is James? Oh, there he is, he is here. I'm sure James would be unhappy. In a world in which evil and injustice exists, we cannot love if we cannot experience what it is to be angry. Imagine someone you loved being abused or humiliated for the entertainment of others or bullied or murdered. Wouldn't that make you angry? I hope that would make you angry. Now, disclaimer coming up. We should be uneasy with anger. We should be somewhat uncomfortable with anger. Anger. We should remember that anger is dangerous. Of that, there is no doubt. It is healthy for us to be uncomfortable with anger because we don't understand everything. What's the saying? There are two sides to every story. Sometimes we hear one side to a story and we get angry, but then we hear the other side to the story and our anger is dissipated. It's like the, you know, the cartoon character who gets angry with all of his friends because they've forgotten his birthday and all the while they've not forgotten his birthday. They're actually plotting behind the scenes to create this big surprise party uh, for this character. I'm qualified in children's television and I can tell you that's a recurring plot line in many cartoons. Sometimes we don't see the bigger picture and so we have to be careful of getting angry because there might be more to the story than we can see. Sometimes we do see everything, we don't really understand it, or we have all sorts of biases working within us that make us angry wrongly. That is an issue for us. But God sees all things and judges all things justly, rightly. So his anger is never misplaced. Anger is danger for us, dangerous for us because it can often lead to sin. It's hard to know when to let go of anger can be quite addictive, that emotion. Paul says in Ephesians 4, in your anger do not sin. That can be easy to say but difficult to do. So we ought to be very cautious, very wary of anger. But God never sins. It is impossible for God to sin. And so it's not an issue for him. And so we ought to give thanks this morning for the anger of God. God's anger is always righteous. It is always right. It is always justified. He loves his children deeply. And he is angry, rightfully, with, with the Edomites for their rejoicing in the fall of Jerusalem. God loves his children with a ferocious love. But here is a question. Do you think the people of God in the city of Jerusalem felt the reality of the Lord's ferocious love for them in the summer of 587 BC, which is when Jerusalem fell to the Babylonians? Do you think they... Uh, recognized the depth of the Lord's love for them as they watched their city gates 
collapse and their walls come down and the Babylonians flood their city and burn and kill and capture and enslave God's people and destroy God's city. Those who were taken to Babylon by force, did they always know the strength of God's love for them or did they ever doubt, I wonder? God loved them and he hated the way that they had been treated, but there must have been times when they felt far from the love of their Lord. Psalm 137, by the rivers of Babylon we sat and wept when we remembered Zion. There in the poplars we hung our harps, for there our captors asked us for songs, our tormentors demanded songs of joy. They said, sing us one of the songs of Zion. How can we sing the songs of the Lord while in a foreign land? And then it, it, it moves into a prayer, Psalm 137, and by verse 7 we have this. Remember, Lord, what the Edomites did on the day Jerusalem fell. Tear it down, they cried. Tear it down to its foundations. It's almost as if uh, these people of God, these people of Jerusalem and Judah who have been taken into exile in Babylon, it's almost as if they look back and they're more wounded, they're more, more hurt by what the Edomites did. They're supposed to be in some way brothers than they are by what the Babylonians did. Or how about Psalm 94? How long, O Lord? How long will the wicked be allowed to gloat? How long will they speak with arrogance? How long will this evil people boast? They crush your people, Lord, hurting those you claim as your own. They kill widows and foreigners and murder orphans. The Lord isn't looking, they say. And besides... The God of Israel doesn't care. And maybe that's how you feel this morning. I believe that he loves me, but I'm not sure I believe as much as I would like to believe. I do believe that he loves me, but look at my family. Look at my finances. Look at my life. And then look at those who live godless lives. They seem so comfortable, so safe, so secure, so happy. The Lord isn't looking, they say, and besides, the God of Israel doesn't care. Not so. Not so. The day of the Lord is near, verse 15. The day of the Lord is coming, and he will judge justly. The deeds done in the darkness will be brought out into the light, he will judge justly and he will make all things new. But I know, we sang a moment ago, I know a day is coming when the deaf will hear his voice, when the blind will see their saviour and the lame will leap for joy. Or perhaps you're better to turn to Revelation chapter 21. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, now the dwelling of God is with men and he will live with them. They will be his people and he will be their God, and God himself will be with them. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death, or mourning, or crying, or pain, 
for the old order of things will have passed away. Every wrong will be put right on that day. God is love, Scripture says, but God is also light, according to Scripture. And light cannot coexist with darkness. One will live, one will die. One will drive the other out. Either the darkness will snuff out the light or the light will drive out the darkness. And the good news is this. God is light. And there is a day coming when he will drive out the darkness. They will be pulled apart forever. God is love, but God is also light. God is love, but God is also a consuming fire who will burn up his enemies when the appointed time arrives. The anger of God is a frightening thing unless you know that you are safe in his love. The anger of God is a frightening thing unless you know that that anger is actually the very thing that will keep you safe. I saw a, a sat- it was a very, very striking image. I wish I had a picture of it, actually. A satellite image of the, uh, the storm, the hurricane in, in America. And uh, it was this kind of, th- these thick, impenetrable circles of, of clouds. They look very dark and very powerful and very strong. And then right in the, the center, you would hardly believe the picture was a real picture, this perfect circle of calm right in the middle, the eye of the storm, this place of perfect peace surrounded by this ferocious, uh, raging storm. And I've heard it it said that as a Christian, as a child of God, you you will live for eternity in the eye of the storm, in that place of, of perfect peace. God is a consuming fire, and all around us, uh, that consuming fire burns brightly, and anything that wants to come to attack us, to wound us, to hurt us, will never get through that consuming fire, but we are held safe in the eye of the storm. It will keep us safe. The anger of God, we ought to give thanks, we ought to rejoice in the love and in the righteous anger of our God. The suffering that we face will be nothing compared to that place of eternal peace. The Apostle Paul says, Our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. Are you suffering? Put your suffering in the scales and see that they are far outweighed by the glory which is on its way. Do not lose heart. Do not lose faith. The Lord is on his way. He loves you. He will defend you. And he will protect you. Even in our suffering, he draws the line in the sand. He draws the boundaries. And one day we will live in a place without suffering and without sorrow. Why do we get to live in the eye of the storm? Why do we get to live in the love of God? Is it because we, unlike the Edomites, are good people and we deserve it? No. Is it because our sin really isn't that big a deal? 
God can just pretend he doesn't see it? No. It's because of Jesus. When you read of the, the people of Judah being betrayed and abandoned by their own brothers, when you read of the merciless humiliation that they faced, when you read of the aggressors casting lots for the spoils, who do you think of? Look at those verses again. Surely you think of Jesus who came to that which was his own only to be rejected from the crowd that cried, crucify him, to Peter who said, I know him not. To the soldiers who cast lots for his clothes. It's all echoed there in verses 10 through to 14. Come and see the king of love. See the purple robe and crown of thorns he wears. Soldiers mock, rulers sneer as he lifts the cruel cross. Lone and friendless now he climbs towards the hill. We worship at your feet where wrath and mercy meet. There is God's anger again. God's anger at sin. We worship at your feet where wrath and mercy meet and a guilty world is washed by a love's pure stream. For us he was made sin. Oh, help me take it in. Deep wounds of love cry out, Father, forgive, I worship the Lamb that was slain. God is light. He hates the darkness of sin. His holy anger burns against it. Every sin will be paid for. God is light and God is love. In love, he himself has come into the darkness to pay the price for our sin on the cross in Christ Jesus. And if we come to know him as our Lord and as our Savior, all of our sins from first to last, from greatest to least, will have been paid for in full by Jesus Christ. Once and for all. We will live in the love of God. We will live in the eye of the storm, in that place of perfect peace for all eternity. God's people have never had it easy, you know, never. But better to be the Israelites than to be the Edomites. Where are you? I wonder. I want to, to finish this morning with a warning. Uh, Obadiah seems very unfamiliar to us. Yet when it comes to the human heart, there is nothing that is new under the sun. The Edomites had been deceived by their own pride. You'll see that in verse 3. The pride of your heart has deceived you. They thought that they were safe and secure without the Lord. They lived in a hilly and a rugged uh, land. It was easy to see their enemy coming and to defend their position and to hide if they needed in the clefts of the rocks. They thought that they were safe and secure without the Lord. Verse 3, the pride of your heart has deceived you. You who live in the clefts of the rocks and make your home in the heights. You who say to yourself, who can bring me down to the ground? Though you soar like the eagle and make your nest among the stars from there, I will bring you down, declares the Lord. Their wise men would be exposed as fools. 
their warriors would be exposed as weak. And the same is true in our day. There are many who think that they are safe and secure in their godless lives. But there is no true security other than that which is offered to us in Christ Jesus. A day of judgment is coming for all, and many wise people will be made to look very foolish on that day. Many strong people will be made to look very weak. So trust in Him. About 240-odd years ago, there was a young minister called Augustus Toplady uh, traveling through the countryside in Somerset, and the, the heavens opened and the rain fell. It became a, a fearsome and a ferocious storm, and uh, young Augustus used his wisdom and sheltered from the storm between two big rocks. He could have been proud. He could have said, no, I'm strong. I'll man up, and I'll take the storm, and I'll be fine. He could have been delusional, and he could have said, what, what a storm? There's no storm. But he was wise, and he found shelter until the storm passed. And whilst he was in that place of, of shelter, watching the rain fall and enjoying being hidden in between these rocks, he began to compose the hymn that we know very well. Rock of ages cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee. Let the water and the blood from thy riven side which flowed be of sin the double cure. Save me from its guilt and power. Not the labor of my hands can fulfill thy law's demands. Could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. Thou must save and thou alone. That's what we saw when we looked at Jonah, wasn't it? Salvation is from the Lord. There is wisdom. The Edomites trusted in themselves. They trusted in their high and rocky ground. They hid in the clefts of the rock. Where will you hide to find shelter from the storm that is coming? Where is your security? Where is your place of peace? Only the security and the peace that is found in the Lord Jesus will last on that day. Trust in Christ Jesus who died for your sin and find your shelter and your strength and your hope and your joy in Jesus. Those who have done that and those who are doing that, let's make sure that we do not find ourselves living our lives like the Edomites did. Let's make sure that we are not fooled by our own pride. Let's make sure that we love our brothers and sisters, that we seek to build one another up, to bless one another, to encourage one another, that we don't kind of sneer and secretly hope uh, for the day of disaster to come to people that we are uh, related to in the Lord Jesus. Let's not tear each other down. Let's love 
Let's forgive. Let's encourage. Let's make sure we are not self-absorbed. Rather, let's be captivated by the example of Christ our Lord, the one who walked in humility, the one who loved self-sacrificially, and the one who invites us this morning to pick up our cross and to follow him. Amen. We stand together as we sing our closing hymn. This is our God, the servant king. He calls us now to follow him.